Welcome, everybody, to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. I'm Boris Evenstein, and I'm sitting down today with Peter Semple. Peter, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Very well. Back from holidays, good. back from Spain, and in familiar surroundings. I have Excellent. to tell you, uh, before we introduce you, that recording podcasts on the road, I mean, it's eminently possible. Everybody says, you know, podcast is the most flexible medium. You set up a mic and off you go. But um, sitting in a 30 plus degrees room with no air conditioning, because you don't want that on tape, sitting sort of in the dark with your laptop crouched on your lap and your mic hanging off to once. I mean, it's, you know, difficult circumstances. Now I'm back in my room. It's really lovely sound and um, familiar setting. So very pleased. And um, well, plus you were there with three kids. How many, how many podcasts did you manage to fit in with 30 degree weather and three kids while on the road? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, one one per, one per week, and we got quite wow. a few. Um, yeah, yeah, got quite a few into production. So we just kept the machine rolling and um, recording, releasing, editing. That's it amazing. Sort of worked. Yeah, it's cool. That's amazing. So let me explain to uh, folks uh, who we're sitting down with today. Uh, so Peter, Peter Sample. Peter is chief marketing officer at Depop, the fashion aficionados. We'll know it, no doubt. And also, if you happen to be under 26, you'll know it, no doubt. Um, If you're not, and many of our listeners aren't, um, we'll have to explain a bit and we'll spend the next hour or so doing that. But just to sort of backtrack a little bit, before you joined Depop, you spent seven years in Google's Creative Lab. And we'll talk a little bit about what that is. And now back to Depop. Depop is a global community-powered, you could say, C2C uh, network or second-hand fashion marketplace. That's effectively yep. what it is. Two-sided platform, buyers and sellers, and sometimes people are both and one in the same time. Presumably, that's where the community aspect comes in. That's right. It's got 30 million registered users and 30 million available items, and people should digest that. So, you know, for those of us living in kind of Amazon's world, yes, there's the infinite shelf and 30 million SKUs are maybe not of that proportion but as far as fashion retail goes 30 million available items is a lot that's a very very broad selection um i've obviously seen a broad selection back where i used to work at Zalando, and Mm. depending on the season um you know or if you're in between seasons you would have both winter and summer items for example but you wouldn't have 30 million available items so that's a lot for sure and you've got 140,000 listings every day so to put that into perspective if i'm not wrong it's hard to get the exact data but she in lists plus minus ten thousand a day maybe more at this point i don't know but yeah. under 40k is still like 10x that's that. great it's great the second hand market is beating out <laughs> the first hand ultra fast fashion market that's ultra good fast that's fashion good market. exactly yeah, yeah. but of course but, 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 but of course the infinite shelf comes with uh, a challenge which is discovery so we'll have to talk a little bit about 100%. how do you find you know what's relevant for you among that much stuff so but anyway that's kind of depop um to give you or our listeners a sense of the size in 2022 gmv that's the total transacted volume of the merchandise it's not your revenue but it's how much is basically ha- you know changing hands across the platform was just over 550 million US dollars. And um, you operate globally. So you'll have, if I'm not wrong, some markets across the globe. Your uh, own, or Depop is 
acquired by Etsy in 2021. And once again, the majority of the users are Gen Z demographic. We can talk a little bit about that. But the point about that is that you and your team, you truly understand how to build a product with that slightly younger generation and cohort and build a love brand around that. And that's something that would be great to understand. And of course, yeah. everybody has high hopes reaching that audience because by some accounts in the next 10 years or so, that's going to be 40, 50% of the luxury market, for example. So everybody wants to tap into that cohort yeah, and build a relationship. Yeah, that's Shoot. a good intro. So <laughs> good. <laughs> Please, what did I miss? Tell me, what, who's Peter in, in, in his own words? Uh, no, I mean, that was a great intro to Depop, and you're right. I think 30 plus million registered users, this incredible turnover of tens, hundreds of thousands of new items coming up, and obviously new items being sold, or not new, but new items to the marketplace being bought and sold, and this sort of running total of around 30 million at any given moment on the platform. Um, so yeah, me, I'm, I mean, as you said, prior to this, Google, prior to that, creative agencies sort of here in New York, but fundamentally, I sort of think of myself as generally obsessive about things like design and music and culture and technology. And those have sort of been personal guidance, sort of reference points for me. And they've thankfully been a big part of my career as well. Um, let's see, I'm an on off runner on and off more off at the moment, but trying to get back into that. Uh, father of two kids and a dog. I live here in London, aspiring writer, always loved the idea of writing, have done some of it for my career. Maybe we'll get back to that one day. Used to own a bar in New York or be part of a ownership of a bar in New York. That was a fun adventure of <laughs> cultural interaction in its own right. Nice. Nice, um, nice. And yeah, I just, I, I sort of think of I love learning stuff. I'm sort of fascinated in people. I'm interested in constantly learning. I've always kind of liked this idea of a thing that was in DJ Shadow, who's a musician that maybe many of your listeners will know. There was a sort of quote from an interview uh, that he used on his first album that had this sort of famed jazz drummer. I think his name was George Marsh. Actually, I don't know his work particularly well, but him saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of the drum, but then I'm also a teacher of the drum. And I think that's that's a really wonderful way to think about nice. life is constantly learning. And, you know, I'm not 21 year old anymore. I've done a lot and I've been around a lot. So hopefully I can kind of pass some of that learning on to people as well. I love the way you you brought in DJ Shadow there. And the, you know, kind of 1996 um, world of music. And, yeah, yeah. you know, that struck me when, when we first met. Um, I got to know you through a shared um, friend in common. You know, what struck me was that you, you do have this kind of, you embody this kind of renaissance quality of being incredibly inspired by popular culture, be it music or fashion or film or lots of, you know, design. And taking that into a business context and using that to charge up the emotional association of a brand or to build an yeah. offer or to drive traffic to Depop, as it were. And so mm -hmm. that's that renaissance quality uh, sort of between <laughs> culture and business. And of course, critical voices will say, well, if that serves the aesthetic commodification of culture, then... It somehow devalues the culture and then more apologetic folks might say, no, it's kind of bringing that element of inspiration and that little sort of je ne sais quoi, that, you know, ineffable, artistic, fun, poetic element into, yeah, yeah. into business, which would otherwise just be 
I mean, if you don't have it, then it's just retail, right? It's just SKUs exchanging yeah. owners yeah, yeah. against a fee. So why don't we start with music? Um, I, <laughs> I saw one of the interviews with you where you said, uh, you know, one of your favorite interview questions is, uh, tell me about your favorite music. So here goes, Peter, tell me about your favorite music. <laughs> it's actually interesting that um, that uh, DJ Shadow record has a song on it called Midnight in a Perfect World. And that's also my dog's name is Midnight. That's how sort of deep my affiliation with that uh, record goes. Um, and it's very kind of you to say the Renaissance man thing. I think that's a great, what a brilliant aspiration to one day be referred to or understood as a uh, Renaissance man. But you know, those ideas, I don't know, the things I reference from growing up and the kind of cultural figures and cultural artifacts of my growing up, it's amazing how relevant some of them still are. In fact, I was telling someone about that George Marsh quote the other day, and they reminded me that Pharrell in his new Louis Vuitton show described himself as the pupil king, and that's broadly the same notion. He's he's at the height of his game, and he's still saying what he loves most is learning new stuff. So... Perhaps I'd like to think I'm in a kind of good mental space with Pharrell. Uh, music, for, for the most part, I'm uh, an enormous sort of fan and consumer of and kind of like historian at times for hip hop music. And was kind of introduced to that for a very young, from a very young age and sort of love the language bit of it. I think that sort of all taps into reading and writing and those things that I love. Um, but very gratefully, my mum is a huge music fan. And so she kind of raised my brother and I on classical music and Depeche Mode and the Stones and the Beatles and sort of everything in between, less so hip hop, but she's heard me bore her about that for for decades at this point. Um, <laughs> so kind of all over the place, but mostly hip hop and then through hip hop discovery of incredible depth of soul and jazz and funk and all of these things that have obviously been kind of reference points and samples for hip hop. So it in itself is this amazing kind of rabbit hole of discovery. Yeah. And was there a formative decade that put you on the on the track and you're forever sort of anchored to a particular period or or did you get started at some point and then you explored further into the past and into the you present? You know, it's amazing and I'm going to sort of borrow the brilliant language of a really good friend of mine at some point. But I mean, I was sort of introduced to, I was born in 81. I was kind of introduced to hip hop really in the late 80s where there was some like pop crossover sort of general sort of idiocy maybe of some of that stuff but um I would think I was given an NWA tape when I was seven or eight years old and I was a super nerdy kid and back then you know that was unbelievably kind of aggressive profane music and to some degree as a kind of impressionable seven or eight year old it was sort of like a rebellion just the act of listening yeah. to it you know when those parental advisory stickers used to be on records so that was kind of my introduction to it but then the wonderful thing is I kind of I'm 10, 11, 12, 13 at this kind of early to mid 90s stage where hip hop itself is really maturing and actually the kind of the variety of it and the kind of exploration creatively is really taking place at that point. And so I have a really good friend who's a musician and he and I nerd out on music stuff a lot. And he, I was once lamenting the fact that I wasn't born in the 70s in order to kind of be there at the birth of hip hop and like really be part of this kind of cultural shift. But his view, and it's the one that I wouldn't have had the words to describe, but he was like, hey, we're really lucky we grew up in the 90s because that's when it came of age. Actually, that's when yeah. the fascinating expansion yeah. of it happened. And we lived through that. Like I lived through Wu-Tang coming, you know, around for the first time and Biggie and Tupac and all of those things. And so anyway, the nineties, uh, specifically kind of nineties, New York thing is all of those big names. And then some of the kind of slightly less 
no names digging in the crates and um oh yeah oh yeah DITC know, all of those sort of the DITC exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, DITC. Smith and Wesson all of those of you know everything love that stuff yeah, yeah. still yeah. listen to it oh, all wonderful we could we could spend the next hour easily just uh, compare, <laughs> yeah, comparing we should probably notes talk on, about something else yeah <laughs> <laughs> comparing notes on that but um maybe um, just as a as a small footnote I I do believe that the the 90s were particularly formative for hip hop and you had this Cambrian explosion where hip hop was in equal measure still sort of rooted in its subcultural street style aggressive lyrics battle rap but then also you had this more intellectualized movement where people were, mm. were exploring with sort of complicated poetry and I'm thinking now about things like um uh, sound bombing on raucous records and it had everything yeah, yeah. ranging from people who were just sort of <laughs> aggressively freestyling and then others who were you could envision them with their backpacks and their sharpened pencils and then really meticulously writing complicated double rhymes and all these things yeah. um anyway i, I love, I love I, anyway i guess i was gonna say my last thing i think to that brilliant point is that i love it's so fascinating to me music that may have been produced whoever knows when you know there's a ton of it in the 90s hip-hop world there's a bunch of it across many other genres that you could play today and introduce someone to it for the first time and they'd think it was made today and i think like organized confusions records sound production wise and lyrically ahead of the time in 2023 let alone in the late 80s and early 90s and i don't know i lied whatever Joni mitchell's hissing of summer lawns like there's a bunch of records you could put on today and people were like would think they were brand new and fresh and a kind of culmination of everything that's followed. And they came out 20, 30, 40 years ago. I love that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Why is the music question? Why, why you said somewhere that the music question is one of your favorite interview questions. Why? Yeah, well, I, um, I mean, you know, I'm, I like to think of myself as lots of things and interest in lots of things, but professionally I'm a marketeer and actually the role of marketing is understanding people and then finding ways to connect with them really. So that, you know, I guess it is very most base you can sell them products, but you can build relationships with them as a business and a brand over the course of time. And actually, therefore, I'm always sort of looking for ways in interviews to, you know, you can interview people who are kind of academically capable of the role that is set forth ahead of them. Um, but the music thing for me, partly because I actually have a pretty good knowledge of music. So I feel like I can kind of find common ground and reference point in most musical conversations. Um, but it's a thing that most people are into that's a good start point and it's also undeniably a force of kind of cultural engagement in you know our world the modern world and has been for however long decades or centuries or whatever so i kind of i like to think that anyone should be able to answer that question like hey tell me about the music you're into and they should be able to help to me describe why they're into it what is it about them about that particular artist or that particular time or that particular genre that motivates them um and there's no judgment actually half the time i'm excited to learn something new if they tell me about um music i don't know or they tell me about a music genre that i actively don't like but then i'm interested to hear them try and convince me or persuade me why they like it so to some degree it's sort of like a a hacky but hopefully useful way of getting them to talk about something ideally they're comfortable with and helping me understand whether they are capable of persuading and being compelling in language and communication and that's to some degree all that marketing is when it's boiled down yeah nice i i, I think that's uh 
very disarming question as well because it's very hard to pretend so you know yeah if you, if you, and i do i do say not. listen i don't care there's no wrong answers i'm not going to be a snobbish judge about any of this stuff like i'm yeah so you have to kind of set it up in the right way hopefully yeah but but you know but, but if you said i i love 90s hip-hop and and then you go oh really like like who do you like in particular and why mm. then then that's it like you're exposed so you can't really pretend you kind of have to say listen yeah. i sort of like it i don't really know maybe there's a few big names here like notorious big but i can't really name my favorite you know and so then yeah. that, at least it tells you this person's pretty honest uh, you yeah know, maybe they're yeah, yeah. not so deep in music but they're but they're honest it's hard to fake anyway on the way to depop you mm -hmm. spent some years at google creative lab and yeah i took i took a look at what sort of stuff is going on there there was one project that i found super interesting and would love to learn more called project jacob or jacar yeah, yeah i don't know how to say it um and it, it, it sort of involved using textile fiber um, to make it, I guess, conductive and to use it as a digital interface. So you could sort of yeah. provide in inputs in, you know, through it, maybe also display something brought wearable computing to mind. What, what, what sort of things did you get up there and what did you most learn at your time there? Yeah. So the creative lab was this really interesting unit, I guess, lab in the truest sense of that sat yeah. somewhere between product and marketing in Google. So for me, it was a really interesting kind of expansion of the things I'd been able to touch and participate in and learn because I'd come from marketing and brand building and advertising and all of those sort of things and was hired to kind of bring that idea of how you communicate and how you compel people, but actually to start thinking about it from a product iteration standpoint. So we sat between product and marketing and the incredible thing, and it was a real privilege to exist there, is that we didn't really have a plan. We didn't really start the year with, you know, defined OKRs. We understand what the business context was and we understood what the, the business goals were. But really, we were depended on to consistently develop new ideas that made Google technology more useful to people. Or at least that's how I sort of made sense of it after a while of being there. Um, and some of those ideas were marketing shaped things like oh we're launching a new phone let's describe to people how it's a worthwhile endeavor to buy one of these phones or to think about switching operating systems so some of it was actually the storytelling bit in a very kind of traditional communications vein but a lot of it was actually working with the product teams or working with what alphabet later be called its its other bet projects like emergent technologies and thinking oh if google is developing this thing how do you make it how do you position it and land it in the world in a way that it's going to make sense to people? And it's, you know, in this sort of extraordinary 20 years of great tech progress, technology is scary in lots and lots of ways to people. So, you know, you mentioned Product Jacquard. That's a really good, there's a couple of fun examples that probably exemplify the work we did. Although for the most part, my work was actually on the major Google products and it was, Google, you know, Google search and positioning that and YouTube and Google Maps. So touched a lot of... Um, the really, you know, affecting and, and interacted with by billions of people, touched a lot of that stuff and learned a lot from the people I work with on those. But Project Jacquard and one of the projects I'll tell you about are good kind of creative examples, maybe for your listeners. But so Project Jacquard, a brilliant Russian scientist who was sort of working on secondment um, at Google and had worked in Silicon Valley in a number of different ways. He had sort of discovered, he wasn't the first person to discover it, but effectively had figured out how to weave capacitive thread and conductive thread into almost traditional manufacturing processes. So 
if you think about all the vintage, loom, vintage looms and all of the things that exist around the world creating clothes, what if all of those don't need to change? You can actually just find a way of effectively working with that existing supply infrastructure and build capacitive interactive technology into clothing. And all of this was sort of happening at a time when smart watches were coming out, kind of wearables, all that sort of stuff. And his vision really was that, you know, we already like clothes. There were these objects that various tech companies, including Google, were building that we would have to put on. And Apple Watch is obviously the most kind of prominent example all these years later. But what if the items of clothing you ha- you sort of were already purchasing or wearing or owning could become the kind of interaction method between you and the technology around you? And if part of the promise of interactive technology and wearables was separating you from being fixated on a screen and kind of freeing you up to live your life. This was sort of an evolutionary possibility beyond that. You don't even have to wear a watch. You just sort of interact with technology and therefore the technology around you can sort of disappear to some degree. And, um, and that, that was sort of the premise of it really was this whole, what if you could just make fabric interactive? And you, I don't know, like a silly example that we never explored, but what if you drew your curtains and therefore your curtains were connected to the smart lights in your room and they knew to turn the lights on? Like how could, again, technology become useful to people? Um, and that was a fascinating project. It was also really interesting for me working with Levi's and they went on to collaborate with San Laurent and stuff. So it kind of brought together my worlds of techno- technology fascination and fashion stuff. But the principle of, oh, Google is now in your clothing, that could be a terrifying principle to lots of people in the world, or man, I'm going to get served lots of ads and all the rest of it. So that was a really interesting example of working with an emergent technology and thinking about positioning it in a way that people could understand the benefit of it. And it could truly be kind of additive to people's lives versus just another space that Google is kind of, or technology is taking over. And another one that is sort of, again, like links, I managed to find lots of ways to link the things I love um, with the technology prospects of Google, but like machine learning, artificial intelligence, obviously those things, I left Google nearly five years ago. So a lot has progressed in terms of the public narrative around those things. But in, I guess, 2015 or 16, or whenever we were doing this project, you know, the dominant ML narratives were, you know, job loss and automation and I guess at a crazy end, Terminator robots and various things of that sort, when actually ML as a tool really can help people do far more than they were ever capable of before. I mean, I'm sure, I think you and I talked about it last time, but ChatGPT and these things are actually really interesting tools for creativity and creation um, when wielded correctly. And we, we sort of in a world where the ML narrative was not necessarily a positive one, particularly, but companies like Google were basing the future of their products on the potential of ML. You know, we did this sort of really interesting project where we sort of built a musical instrument that allowed that, and again, leveraging some brilliant, leveraging some brilliant thinking and technology that already existed in software form within Google, but which actually built a physical instrument where music producers could use ML to create sounds that had never, ever been heard before. So it sort of took various inputs of sounds you would put into it, and then the computer kind of imagined new sounds that sat at the intersection of those things. And then we worked with, and sadly, sort of for a number of reasons, it, it never kind of took off in the way we wanted to, but we worked with a couple of musicians and producers who are big recognizable names, just to put this thing in the hands of them. And the kind of idea of it was... And there's a public website off uh, up about the project and the kind of experimental project. But it was sort of this notion of music is a thing that is genuinely accessible to people. 
if we can show the kind of creative potential of ML through something that they're likely to engage with, like music, you can start to change the narrative around what ML and AI can help us achieve. From that lab setup, which was kind of basically at the highest level, tinkering creative experiments, you shifted back into kind of, if I can put it this way, operator mode running, going concern in the core business, not sort of on the experimental satellite edges, but sort of Mm. in the middle of it. And what what made you want to go back into the business fold? The amazing thing about that role was I'd have 10 meetings or 10 hours of meetings a day, and each one of them would be about wildly different projects, which was incredible, exhausting at times, but incredible. Um, And I began thinking, I wonder if there was, if I focused all of my energy on one thing, what might that thing be? And I had sort of loosely come up with this equation where as these things somewhat somewhat serendipitously happen, I was introduced to the CEO then of, of Depop. But I'd sort of started thinking that technology is the thing that is going to drive great opportunity and impact. Um, so if I was to leave Google, I'd have to find something that was technology-based. I think I don't think I could necessarily go back to kind of the physical product world maybe one day, but technology. And then I sort of started thinking about if I was to obsess about, you know, hey, I've already been obsessing about things for 20 minutes here, but music or fashion are the things that I think about all day. And I was like, I wonder if I could find a role in technology space with with one of those key interest things of mine. And then a role really where the success or failure, I suppose, of the thing, I could, my fingerprints would be on it. That would be the next challenge for me. I've, I feel so proud of the work I was part of leading, participating in driving, delivering at Google. But Google's also a company that I think now has more than 100,000 people and makes money in lots of different ways. And to some degree, I'm very, as I say, very proud of the work we did. But if I hadn't shown up for work, Google probably would have been fine. And I think the next challenge for me in my career was, you know, if I don't show up for work, it'll be noticed. Like I'm sort of part of a role, the role is part of defining the success or, or lack thereof of the business. So anyway, I, all of those things, that was the loose equation I'd, I'd kind of come up with in my brain is, oh, I wonder if I could start to think about a role that might connect some of those dots. And then miraculously, I was introduced to the CEO of Depop, who Depop was a sort of post-Series B company at the time, much smaller, very different shape from the one it is now. Um, there was a CEO, there weren't any other C-suite roles at that point. So it was sort of that gives you a sense of where it was in its kind of like corporate maturation, as it were. Um, yep. And she was looking for a CMO. She was a brilliant operator and she'd been part of the grand success of building Depop to where it was then. That was sort of 2018. The realization of this partnership they could develop with Gen Z as a kind of community that was coming out and reshaping everything. Maria, the then CEO and and the founder, Simon, they were the two who really made that possible and started building the team that sets Depop off, off on the journey it's now on. Um, and I met her and we had this sort of interesting conversation. She was trying to bring someone in to lead the marketing part specifically because Simon, the founder, was actually splitting his time now doing a few other things. And she was the operator and she wanted someone who had a point of view about culture and purpose and the narrative of the business that we were trying to build. And it was kind of a great thing. And I, you know, I'm sure this has been the experience of lots of your listeners, but I wasn't, I hadn't started looking for a job. I'd started thinking about what the right job might be. I then met this brilliant woman at a fascinating company that miraculously connected a bunch of stuff that I love and I didn't need a job. So I wasn't sort of like in this anxious 
pursuit of one. We just had a number of conversations over the course of a few months. And I think she says pretty early on, she decided she wanted me. I think it took me a while to realize that she wanted me and actually I wanted the, the prospect of the opportunity. Um, but really Depop is this kind of realization for me of personal interest, professional wisdom or lack thereof, uh, and the kind of great opportunity that comes with creator economy, new business models, new consumption models, and hey, it's fashion and it's young people doing interesting stuff. That's a pretty cool thing to do all day. And how, how do you split your time between, let's call it brand marketing, where you're trying to develop and tell the Depop story and performance marketing, where it mm. literally is about, okay, let me put, you know, $20 on this auction on that channel and, you know, ROI optimize the investment yeah. that I get from that a return. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I've been here for nearly five years and it's changed shape a lot. And certainly the brand bit was what I'd spent my career up to this point really doing. I, I wouldn't remotely have claimed to be a performance marketing expert, but I'd worked with some great people in that space along the way. And actually we've hired some really talented people who I've learned from either peers of mine or, um, or people sort of who work into me along the way. So I now balance both and I think vaguely capably, hopefully. Um, and I think ultimately about the meaning we want to have in people's lives. Like if we're not interesting to them for any number of reasons, I don't think even the most efficient media plan and marketing investment plan <laughs> will help us succeed in a competitive world and where we're not just competing with fashion and resale competitors, but also attention competitors everywhere. Um, but, you know, obviously you need a bit, a bit of both of them. I think you really need to believe for a business like ours that you are contributing something to these people's lives. Like they have a reason to keep coming back to you. And then underneath that, you want to continue building out an efficient way to place your money to get to as many of those people and get them over the line as much as you possibly can. So I sort of split my time. I guess that's not a particularly inspiring answer. But what I probably do more so is I have six or seven leaders who run different functions beneath me. And I feel like, and they're very capable and they're brilliant. And obviously, they're deeper experts in some of the areas than even I am. But I spend time... I sort of go through some variety of a rotation, not necessarily a kind of considered one, but actually the brand narrative and the creative stuff, they're in very good hands right now. Let's work on the maturation of the channels that we're building up. And okay, now we've got some of those to the right level of return. Now I can switch back to going, what's the comms strategy that will help us expand to broader and broader audiences? And let, let's talk a little bit about what some of your core beliefs are for how you compete and then therefore for how you spend your time. Because, D, I mean, Depop is not eBay. So it's mm. not just a, let's call it a neutral, convenience-optimized marketplace, you know, that brings buyers and sellers together. I think if I'm not mistaken, it even started out out of a, a, a sort of fashion slash culture magazine context or something like that. I'm thinking about Pig Magazine. Yeah, yeah. Which was like um, an Italian publication that was for like People in the Groove was the name. And it, it sort of featured a bunch of cultural producers or creators and then sort of offered what they had to sell. That's right. On a kind that's of exactly market, right. right. So yeah. it has its roots, if you will, in the culture. And you mentioned now, you talked a little bit about relevance effectively, right? Relevance to your target audience. So I, I assume that you're trying to compete on engagement, inspiration, and storytelling as, a, as opposed mm. to just like, hey, we're the biggest marketplace and we have the most efficient 
or most convenient, whatever it might be, logistics, transaction, payment security, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. So, so how do you do that? Like, what's important in the Depop story that would make that that from your point of view that would make a customer say, ah, nah, eBay's not for me. I want Depop. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that's, that's a great way of describing the sort of entrance and the beginnings of the business and what's kind of really valuable and fundamental and still true today is that, yeah, Simon, the founder, had this magazine, met lots of interesting people, built a sort of commerce space where they could sell their stuff. So actually, you know, and that was 2010, 2011. It's not that far from kind of the very early beginnings of social media, really. And it was really when social media began to mature. But he built a community marketplace from the outset. He actually got the community he was part of, or these kind of interesting kind of culture communities. And they were the customers for him as a marketplace, but they were also the sellers. They were selling the stuff they did. And that focus on people was a really interesting and pretty new idea at the time and creating space for them to sell their own things without the need to go to big distributors or the dominant kind of e-commerce sites at the time. Um, and that really maintains like he wanted to create a space where people could be themselves and sell stuff. And what's sort of the unexpected but brilliant part of that is, you know, that preceded that in 2010 or 11 preceded Gen Z coming online. But you get to a point 2014, 15, 16, where this new generation comes online and they are specifically looking for places to make their own, to express themselves freely and to do so, you know, beyond what social media can get you from a kind of clout and dopamine example, like spaces where they could make something of themselves. Um, uh, so that, you know, the sort of his original iteration, and he couldn't have foreseen that that was what Gen Z would want, but Gen Z come online and then very quickly, Maria and Simon, the two people I mentioned earlier, they acknowledge that there's this incredible kind of movement of self-expression and sort of reshaping of technological interaction that this new generation is and they fully decide to listen to that and to really lean into it and really spend time with interesting you know i guess the, the word influencer becomes more and more bankrupt to some degree but eight nine years ago people who were had an influential point of view on consumption or fashion taste or the rest of it Maria and Simon spent their time building a team to connect more and more deeply with them. And that's, you know, eBay's been around for a very long time. And as a sort of on-off sneaker collector over the years, like I've interacted with eBay really productively and successfully uh, and still do for various things at various times. But it was built around marketplace transactional listings. And actually Depop was built around people and, and marketplace transactional listings. So what Depop is today is... Sure, our search algorithms and our discovery and our methods of inspiration and merchandising to help you find, if you know exactly what you're looking for, our job is to help you find that as quickly as possible. But more so because of the kind of human participants and our community and this sort of collective, we're actually, people express themselves through the app. They show you how to style things. They show you what their taste level is. People shop other people's likes. And actually, and I think Spotify is a really good example of their discovery engine being powered by billions of playlists that individual people are using. And they run the algorithms through that to help you discover new um, music. Sure. Yeah. Depop's a version of that, actually. It's, it's, we have to become more technologically savvy and more technologically efficient for the people who know what they're looking for and want to come in and spend little time here and get in and get out and find their thing. 
but also because we have this incredible variety of people who've been part of the journey over the years, the kind of 30 plus million you talked about at the beginning, you have lots of personalities, yeah, giving direction, giving inspiration, giving influence. Um, and so it, what's fundamental to Depop is that we consistently get better at both of those things. We get better at you know, the rational end of search and discovery and completion and transaction and, you know, um, trust and safety and all of those parts. Those are the foundations of a marketplace business today. Um, what we have is a really vibrant community of people who are shaping the product and telling us very actively what they want, but also shaping the experience for anyone who comes there, new or old, basically. Yeah, I mean, the 30 million items is the tricky problem, right? Because on yeah. the upside, hypothesis is got something for everyone. On the downside, it's probably tricky to control for authenticity and discovery is a whole nother level of, of challenge. And what you just mentioned is, I think worth double clicking on you, you know, on one hand, you could view a seller's other items. So that's a particularly interesting way to go through inventory where the seller might not just sell tops or, you know, you might mm. start with, I'm looking for a t-shirt, but the seller might not just sell t-shirts. Seller might actually sell an outfit or a collection or something that is a mix of, you know, tops and sneakers that go with it and the jeans in a bag. And that's kind of the look. Yeah. And the seller's taste will be the unifying, coherent umbrella, which kind of makes those things potentially relevant to the person looking. On the other hand, yeah. you mentioned shopping likes or going through other people's wish lists or likes as a way to drive that kind of discovery process mm. what else is it that you do to personalize the offer and um, perhaps specifically in relation to that age-old cold start problem right because not everybody's logged in not everybody has a browsing history or a purchase history so a lot of the people you don't really know exactly where to personalize them yeah um I mean, the cold start thing is, yeah, is will forever remain a challenge, of course. And you look at, I don't know, you look at companies like TikTok that have built such responsive algorithms that they're very good immediately at reading some signals of you and ideally, therefore, showing you more of the stuff you're into. Um, you know, we, we do the kind of, I guess, the sort of non-scientific or non-rocket science version is at onboarding, try and understand where people have come from and what their pathway into the app has been through advertising or an activation or whatever and what the context might have been and then of course offer them the option to tell us something about themselves on the onboarding process to start to have some initial signals of where they might guide we might guide them and then once they're in the app and this is sort of you know as with every kind of tech product a constant evolution like ideally over the course of months the app looks somewhat different as it just keeps getting better and better in service of the people um, but you know work on our search algorithm and the kind of machine-driven signals that we can pull to associate whether you're searching for a very specific thing like I want this pair of sneakers in this colorway can we give you an answer to that if the inventory exists for sure we can or can we give you related topics we find people kind of interestingly because of our primarily young you know you sort of said majority Gen Z we're, I don't know whether we're, we're, we're well I'm sure we're still probably majority Gen Z but what's been really wonderful is the expansion of resale to more and more demographics into a much broader swathe of even Gen Z over the last few years but people actually might come in and start with a style prompt they might go Harry Styles and see what kind of clothing that might throw up or Barbie core or any number of these other things that are you know broad 
cultural realities or world cultural kind of reference points. And we're trying to constantly find on the kind of algorithmic machine side, but also internal taste makers and experience and kind of user understanding, make sure that we give you the right uh, kind of, we display the right items as a result of those search I, things. I've looked at some of these trends and we'll have to dive deep some on them pretty, in a bit. Pretty wild ones. Uh, pretty wild ones, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, the one that keeps coming up everywhere is Y2K, you know, which yeah, yeah. many of my friends wouldn't know where to begin to make sense of that as a fashion style, right? Y2K, obviously, you know, that was your and my upbringing. So it's sort of just the, the clothes that we were wearing without necessarily understanding the connotations in the time. But but we sort of see these sort of influence spikes and inspiration spikes around any number of interesting things. You know, the Women's World Cup is taking place. So, okay, interesting, big sporting event, football shirts and the vintage kind of selection of those, that becomes an interesting spike. Stranger Things is on TV. Actually, I've never watched Stranger Things and I should really do it. But this sort of nostalgia for 80s and some of the kind of um, artifacts and garments there work. So we see Stranger Things spike. We see there's incredibly micro ones that take place. I think when that when the Woodstock 99 documentary um, came out, a bunch of people started searching for the yellow T-shirts, the wardens at Woodstock 99 in this documentary were wearing. So, you know, there's kind of micro and macro spikes. But what's sort of amazing is with the digital signature that people leave through their interactions and through the searching and kind of the algorithmic nodes bit, plus the actual people we have on the platform, um, we get really interesting signals and we do our very best to make the machine better as a result of it, but also give pride and prominence to interesting people, interesting personalities, interesting kind of taste graphs. So you get kind of a mix of, yeah, merchandising and machine efficiency effectively. You know, we, we talked a few minutes ago about the origins of the platform in cultural pioneers. So people mm. who were themselves making things, they were cultural producers, they were maybe in you know featured in that magazine. And it's like talking to the top of the pyramid in a way. Mm. So tastemakers, people who have judgment, who spend a lot of time, you know, consuming, ingesting music, art, fashion, and so on. And the assortment and the stories around the assortment have to sort of respond to that and keep engaging that top of the pyramid customer. But but the money is made in the middle of the pyramid or even mm. at the bottom of the pyramid where people are less discerning, at least by their kind of micro judgments around, oh, well, this is the yellow t-shirt from the documentary, but it's not quite the right one. And so how yeah. do you balance appealing to the cultural pioneers and selling to a broader mainstream? How do you get that yeah. balance right without going over the over the top of people's heads? We want to be a company that has a real impact on the world. We want to change consumption. And therefore, I don't really want to limit us to anyone. Like I, I said, I want as many people to come to the party as possible. And the great news is that if we, because the way our business model works, the more people we can encourage to come to circular consumption, the bigger our business is as well. Like they're, they're like fundamentally intertwined. So... I love that we've kind of grown up as the cool destination and this sort of very kind of culturally attuned destination for resale fashion, but I don't want that to limit us. And therefore the journey we're on and I'm on with my teams and we're on as a kind of business more significantly is, you know, I don't want to lose desirability or aspiration or the coolness, but actually what is the version of coolness that becomes more and more accessible to broader and broader audiences? And I think a lot about engagement, I guess the word cool obviously has, you know, People construe it as one way or the other, and cool itself could be niche. But how can we be engaging, compelling? Like if you have three different resale apps on your phone, 
and you've 10 minutes to spare at the bus stop? How are we the one that you come to? But, but how do you make it so that the platform doesn't get flooded with undifferentiated middle of the market, low price stuff? Because presumably, I mean, if you have 30 million registered users, mm. there's an audience there. And so someone would try to capture that market and and basically do tiny arbitrage on getting something from last season that is not particularly special to begin with, but they got it at a very, very low purchase price. And then they list it there at a, with the tiniest of margins. So from a pricing point of view, it's super competitive. It's just not exactly the wonderful thrift shop find. You know, it's not that 1970s, you know, yeah. Bordeaux red leather varsity jacket or whatever. It's just last season's polo shirt at an incredibly yeah. low price because that market entrant is okay with that tiny mm. margin. And and how do you make it so that the platform doesn't just get flooded with this kind of stock, which eventually would collapse that inspirational element that you just described? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think, you know, you see there's lots of um, kind of narrative in the media these days about how even thrifting, physical thrifting is changing because of the sheer volume of mass produced fast and ultra fast fashion that kind of finds its way into thrift shops so exactly goodwills in the us that are just full of whatever pretty little thing or boohoo or any number of those brands she in now sort of at a sort of terrifying scale um so i mean that exists on our uh marketplace and those products exist on our marketplace and and that's not it within itself a bad thing. I'd rather they were resold on our marketplace than found their way into landfill. So extending the life of these these low-priced garments, and that's not a bad thing, albeit the problem with some of the production quality of them is they don't really last very long, so it's their ability to kind of circulate, unlike the Bordeaux Red uh, Varsity jacket that is still probably going strong 50 years later. Um, so those things do exist on the marketplace, and I don't think that's a, a bad thing if they are continuing the life of things that would otherwise be discarded, essentially. Um, but ultimately, again, with this sort of both the way our search works and the way we look at merchandising, can we present a variety? If you're looking for a black t-shirt and you simply don't care and you want the cheapest one, then a secondhand fast fashion one might reach the pile there. If you search for a black t-shirt, can we show you an interesting variety of options you might have and then allow you to kind of toggle and filter if you really care about price fine then you can find the cheapest possible one if you want to look at price from a descent you know actually sometimes i end up looking at the highest price ob object because i'm trying to find a really interesting vintage t-shirt from the 90s and i'm interested in the most rare and, and curatable of them and then i kind of work my way down from that but our job effectively becomes we don't limit necessarily what comes onto the marketplace we try and present variety and interesting discovery journeys throughout it. And as I say, if people need very inexpensive things, and, and more and more people do, of course, with the economic situation we have, then I'm glad they're finding a way to kind of repurpose and extend the life of cheap garments. But with the right searching, with the right inspiration, with that right kind of curation that we can drive, there's many, many more interesting things that aren't actually greatly more expensive but are different from buying a secondhand Shein t-shirt. So yeah. I hope and I guess that's an okay answer. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, I guess the, 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 the thing is attention is the scarce resource that we're all in a way competing for. Mm. And 
if the first few premium slots in the catalog are owned by somebody who just happens to list, you know, not 140 items, but 140,000 items. Yeah, and it's yeah. basically impossible to to then get through. That then becomes very costly, I imagine, for you because yeah. suddenly then it's hard to inspire the the customer, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's you know this is where sort of obviously the brilliance of human interaction and the machine learning piece is that our search results are very unlikely and in fact potentially impossible. I could check with the product team to show you endless listings from the same seller, so you would always see some variety to start your journey and then carry on with that. And, and then I guess the other thing that is sort of ultimately beneficial in terms of people becoming familiar and comfortable with circular consumption is actually maybe the first thing they do buy is very cheap, very accessible, very, you know, a reference point they understand, a massive mass market fast fashion thing. But then, it, as I say, that one interaction, one that's actually extending life of that garment, that's a good thing. But then that's probably the on-ramp. You spent a lot of time marketing to this elusive generation that everybody keeps talking about. Gen Z often portrayed as contradictory values, unclear what they exactly want. You know, she inhals on the one hand, Fridays for Future on the other hand, circularity, sustainability, but then this kind of unfettered consumption, social media consumption, et cetera. And I think you've spoken elsewhere in a very empathetic way uh, about that audience. So what have you learned in the process of building a love brand for Gen Z that most people might not understand? Um, well, I think, I mean, the way you've set up the question is the right way to, to frame it. I think the narrative around and kind of the understanding of Gen Z and their behavior and that and its impact has changed considerably, even in the four and a half or five years I've been here. And when I joined 2018, 2019, I spoke a lot about this kind of the enthusiasm of this generation that's, that's reshaping everything and reshaping cultural values and gender identity and political norms and any number of other things. And all of those things remain true. And in fact, on a kind of very commercial level, the influence of Gen Z over wallet and their parents' wallet and their household's wallet, those things continue to grow, which is why lots of businesses are interested in participating with them. But I guess the sort of the idealism of, you know, this generation who simply won't ever buy fast fashion, that hasn't borne out to be true because we have become more and more obsessed with accessibility, convenience and value. And that's partly COVID, maybe, partly sort of the, the behaviors we learned during that, partly the rise of businesses like Shein. So you now, five years later, take a slightly more divided view of Gen Z wants to do the right thing. And I still believe that to be true. But there are lots of other pulls on their time and pulls on their attention and pulls on their investment that means they are also buying Shein Hall. I like to think actually 2023 sort of the mass explosion of that ultra fast fashion and all of those TikTok hauls. I think the sort of ick factor of all of that is... Um, has taken hold sufficiently that it's the star of those things is waning. Does that mean that you yourself have to spend lots of time, or you and your teams have to spend lots of time really staying close to what youth subculture is like these days? I mean, you mentioned cottagecore a moment ago as a, mm. as a sort of fashion style tribe, if you will. There are many more we could talk about, but is, is that something that is like linked to your competitive advantage? Like we get these youth subcultures or someone on the team at least gets them and understands 
where are the musical youth subcultures? Where are the fashion tribes? What's, I don't know, I looked up a few that I'm personally not familiar with, but like what's dark academia and what are yeah. e-boys and e-girls? And so, and there's many more of these tribes, by the way, for, for our listeners, we, you know, we should send them to exactitudes.com. I'll link it in the show oh, yeah. notes. Like yeah, yeah. there's like literally hundreds of little tiles. Like there's typically 12 photographs of a style tribe. And once you see them all together, you realize, oh my God, it's true. There's something coherent and unifying here. And it's like a micro niche. Is that something that you feel you have to get in order to build an offer around that and stay truly competitive? I, I think so. I mean, again, we've, the marketplace has always been kind of curated around the kind of signals we get from people. And some of those are very overt and some of them are the behavioral signals of the things they're shopping for and searching. Um, and we have a number of members of our team. We've hired a lot of people over the years from the Depop community who are either top sellers or building interesting kind of spheres of influence because they're the people living it. It's like, you know, you look at social media creators and some people just understand, I don't sadly, but I understand how to act in front of the camera in a way that will be compelling to an audience and will speak to tens or hundreds or thousands or millions of people. And yes, we actually sort of have proactively hired people like that over the years who just live through the pulse of how people are consuming. Um, and, you know, we've grown and the, the shapes of the business has, has changed, but fundamentally there's still a number of people on the brand team and on the product manager team and dotted around the place engineers who live and breathe this world of resale fashion. They're not all 20-year-olds who will also have hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok, although actually a couple of them do, massive credit to them. Um, but you actually, we've sort of curated a group of people here who are interested in what is happening in fashion consumption and society at large. And I do think we need to keep doing that to maintain a competitive exam uh, advantage. And then I guess the last bit is everything moves so quickly. There's no way you can understand it all. And I like to spend lots of time reading stuff until my wife sort of totally recently tells me to get off my phone or stop going down another TikTok rabbit hole. Um, but I think we've, we have a bunch of people who are, who are sort of genuinely interested. And we also have a direct relationship with the community, our sellers and have direct, we have a team specifically, I have a team who interacts with them every single day. Yeah. Well, look, we'll probably have to wrap up fairly soon. Um, but just to take us to the finish line, I have a couple of super quick questions here for you, yeah, which me. is like kind of standard feature of <laughs> wrapping up. Um, some people say streetwear is done. What do you think? Uh, I don't think it will, is dead. I think we've talked a lot about hip hop, maybe too much for your listeners, but I think hip-hop and streetwear are comparable in that they are constantly referencing an incredible breadth of things that have gone before and reinventing themselves. And I think streetwear will continue to do that. You said somewhere that you collected sneakers for about two decades. Mm -hmm. Two decades. Yeah, yeah, I also love a, my sneakers. <laughs> um, if you could keep only three pairs in your collection, what would they be? Uh... So I guess the sort of now probably kind of mainstream and uh, like non-niche thing is I would definitely, a pair of Jordan 1s, I've worn them almost every week, certainly most days of the last 20 years, I've worn a pair of Jordan 1s and I've worn them out and they're one of the shoes that I kind of grew up loving basketball culture and Michael Jordan, all of those kind of cultural artifacts. It's also one of the first shoes that I started collecting when they got retroed in 2000, 2001, when my 
the sneaker collecting thing kicked off. So definitely one of those because I would I would wear them all the time. Maybe the original black and blue pair. Um, and then I guess what's been amazing about the sneakers thing is it's it's been so part of my life. My son's godfather is someone I met on a sneaker forum. 20 years ago. My godson is the son of actually the same person, but we met on the sneaker forum. The ushers at my wedding, I met on a sneaker forum. Um, so I, there's a couple of pairs, I guess, that are really special to me. One is a pair of New Balance 1500 bread and butter. In fact, you'd know bread and butter because mm. it used to be a yeah. fashion trade show in Berlin and may Correct. or may not have been bought by Zalando at some point, yes. if I recall. That's all, um, absolutely right. <laughs> Correct. But an interesting pair of those that came out at a party at Bread and Butter in Berlin in January 2005 that I was at, and they only made 40 pairs of them, and they were designed by two friends of mine collaborating, and I still have a box-fresh pair of those, which I maybe I'll sell to a Japanese collector one day who's really into them, and I have one pair that I wear. I love those ones. Recommend people look them up. And then the last one, I think, is uh, a friend of ours who was sort of a really fascinating culture historian who worked for Nike and Supreme and Hypebeast and a number of other big businesses, a guy called Gary Warnett, who you may have even come across in your time. Um, he, fascinating individual, sadly died very suddenly in 2017 um, at this sort of incredibly young age of 39. And what was amazing is the influence he had. Supreme produced a box logo t-shirt with his name on it. They gave that the, the heralded red and white space to his name, Nike, Reebok, Adidas, probably others I'm sure, created tributes to him. Even though he's not a sort of household name within the community, he was so influential. Uh, and I was very lucky that, I, I mean, I have a few of, of those things, but I, um, I'd known him since the early 2000s when we first met and we nerded out on writing and hip hop and music and things. and. Uh, Nike created an Airspan 2 with his initials on it that paid tribute to him and actually paid tribute to his father who had worn a pair of those in the 90s. And I have, they only made 40 pairs of them. They only gave them out to close friends of his and I have a pair of those. So I think I would never, ever give those ones up. Wow. Yeah, so more than I've bargained for here on those uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. special <laughs> collector's <laughs> treats. <laughs> nice. So uh, last two questions coming up. When you personally seek creative inspiration, where do you go? What do you look at? Uh, I mean, I've mentioned it before. I think as a sort of one icon who has been inspirational to me for the last 20 plus years, uh, I look at what Pharrell is doing. I think he's a fascinating creator who consistently kind of expands his horizons and is relevant for generations far younger than me as well as me and probably generations older than me so I sort of look at people like him he's he's probably the most shining example of it but then genuinely and this might sound slightly trite but I with a bunch of really interesting people in this business and I find I'm learning stuff all day every day and then when I travel kind of a big fan of just sitting and having coffee and just watching people and seeing what people are wearing and seeing how people are putting together their identities and expressing themselves. And then that will often kind of set me off on a, oh, that's super interesting. Let me Google something about that and see if I can figure it out or talk to someone in the company who might know something about it. So Pharrell at one end and then people and the interesting stuff they do at the other. Yeah, yeah. And finally, your two to three biggest goals for 2023, what would you say? I think professionally, I'm really, I've been at Depop for yeah nearly five years. We're just in the throes of setting the three-year strategy, like what does the next chapter look like? And 
um, I'm very intent on delivering that so that we can obviously build a grand scale and a grand kind of like tidal wave of new people embracing circular consumption. My kids who are six and five years old, they're at this kind of fascinating age of just trying to figure out what they're into. And I'm just trying to encourage them to try as many things as possible and to yeah, try sports and try cultural interests and check out things because I kind of want them to have a really broad variety of parts in life. So I'll stick doing that. Um, and then I've actually, I mentioned at the beginning, I'm an on-off runner. I've just signed up to do the Leeds Marathon next year um, oh, because nice. it's, yeah, and it's been a while. The last time I did a marathon was 2012. So, hey, I'm supremely out of practice here. <laughs> but um, I'm sort of doing that partly because it's for motor neuron disease. And I sort of have a sort of friend who is was diagnosed with that. So this is some, something very close to my heart. Um, and also partly because, you know, per the kids thing, I'm nearly 42. I kind of want to be around for a long time. So I'm interested in uh, health and vitality and fitness and all the things that you have to start thinking about when you're 42, because it doesn't come as easy as it used to. Yeah, true to the Renaissance spirit, right? The mind <laughs> and the body. And business and Something culture. like that. Something like that. Something like that. Super. Peter, well, let me thank you so much for coming on, joining me today, taking the time out of your busy day. Of course. And yeah, hope to see you soon in the flesh in London at some point. Yeah, yeah, come soon. And, and thank you so much for having me and for yeah, the epic conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like the show, please recommend the podcast to a friend. Give us a rating and a quick review wherever you listen to it. This helps others who might be interested to find the show. If there's a topic we should absolutely cover or a guest you'd recommend, please send us your ideas and feedback to dwff.pod at gmail.com. 